0: Let's jump into it. Psalm 93. I'm going to read, then I'm going to pray, then we're going to talk. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring, mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Let's pray. Father, this is my prayer for us this morning, that we would see you as mighty, that we would see you for who you are, and that the radiance of your power, the reality of your majesty, the reality of your might would become for us this morning a sure foundation of joy and hope And delight, God, we want to see you for who you are and not only know you for who you are in our mind, but treasure you for who you are in our hearts. And I ask, Lord, for this task to be done through the power of your Holy Spirit. Uh, Use the words that I say to see this accomplished. Use your words and your scriptures to do what I can't do and what no other human can do in the hearts of men and women. We ask this, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen. This morning, we are going to continue our series that we're calling The Real God for the Real World that is based on the historic Nicene Creed. And last week, as we looked at the first proposition, we talked a bit about what it meant for us as a people to declare together that we believe in one God. We took some time last week to talk about the historic doctrine of the Trinity and how the historic Christian faith is built off the idea and the reality, not just simple knowledge, but reality, that there are not many gods, but there is one true God, and that one true God has existed for all of eternity, fully complete in himself, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one essence for all of eternity. This week we're going to take a step further in the creed. And after the creed declares together that we believe in one God, it's going to begin to draw itself around three main lines. The creed is going to take that understanding of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we were to read the creed in its entirety this morning, which we won't do, and let me make a note. Is Ryan in here? I'll make a note. Uh, Next week, here's what I'll do. I'll print the, the, the creed out on one of the inserts in the bulletin, and maybe we'll do it on some heavy paper, and you can keep it in your Bible. Because if, you were, if we were to read it all the way through right now, and we won't, you'll begin to see that the Creed really begins to divide itself up along the lines of who is God the Father, who is God the Son, and who is God the Holy Spirit. It begins to break itself up along these Trinitarian realities. And this morning, we begin with the first one, God the Father. So the Creed will say this. It will say, as God's people, we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, that's where we're going to go this morning. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. Now, there are many, many, many scriptures in the Bible that clearly and emphatically declare the Father to be God. I said last week we would do the best that we could to not make some of these sermons mere exercises in PowerPoint presentations by digging through all that the scriptures had to say about these things. But it's important that you understand these things so there are gonna be times when we do that and times when we won't. But here's one thing that's historically agreed upon. There is not, and and I've read multiple things about this and I've looked into multiple opinions about this, but there is not one noteworthy heresy In all of church history, that has ever disagreed with the fact that God the Father is God. There is not one noteworthy heresy in church history that has disagreed with the fact that God the Father is God, because of all three, it is the most clearly emphatic in Scripture. So, this morning, let's start by trying to understand why he's called God the Father. And the most important thing that we need to understand when we call God the Father is that he is called the Father for Trinitarian reasons. That's why we start with him being one God. And to understand him as the Father, we have to understand that he is the Father bound up in the Trinity. He is called the Father because he is the Father of the Son from all of eternity, The fullness of the Godhead, as we talked last week, has been pleased, has been eternally and ultimately satisfied in the relationships that exist between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. I read one guy who said this week that God, the Father, has been at home in the happy land of the Trinity for all of eternity. He did not become the Father at Christmas with the birth of Christ. He did not become the Father at any particular point in human history. There was never a time when God the Father has not existed. There was never a time when God was a simple, solitary being. For all of eternity, as we talked about last week in the idea of the Trinity, God has existed in eternal and perfect, satisfied in himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. So he's always been the father. And this is really, if we were to take it a step forward, just a very straightforward reality and implication of confessing Jesus Christ as being God. Because if we believe that Jesus is who he has said he is and he is indeed God, if Jesus is the son, then God, the Godhead must have always included the father, if Jesus is who he has declared himself to be as God and he is the Son, then the Godhead must have always included the Father. That's the point that got Jesus in so much trouble. In fact, John 15, 28, you don't have to turn there, I don't know if it's going to pop up or not, but some of the religious Jews are harassing Jesus and they're angry with Jesus and they're getting mad at him because he's made some really astounding claims and he said this in John 15, 28, he said, for this reason... John said the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, Jesus, and here's why. Because he, talking about Jesus, was calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. God is the father and has always been the father because for all of eternity he has been the father of the son. That's why he's the father He's the Father because of who he is in himself. And this is important to realize. Don't, don't let this sound lofty or don't let this sound kind of divided or don't let this sound kind of separate from a, a right understanding even of Scripture. This is important to realize because if he is the Father in and of himself because he is the Father of the Son, then that means he's not the Father and we don't call him God the Father because of what he does. We don't give him the name God the Father because of what he does. He is God the Father because of who he is. What he does flows out of who he is. He is God the Father. Everything that he does is a consequence of that. Now, when we talk about God being Father, there are a couple of main ways that you can see it implied in Scripture. And at times we tend to take the, the implications of God being the Father or some of His actions that flow out of who He is, and we tend to take those actions and then define Him that way. So let me show you a couple main ways when we think of God the Father that we can see it played out in Scripture. But at times, if we make that the definition of who He is, it can get distorted. It can kind of lead us off track. So, one main way that we tend to think of God the Father. So, many of you, when when we talk about God the Father, your mind might run this way, is that we tend to think of him as the Father because of creation. I mean, it's natural for our minds to think of God being Father because he has created the world or, or he has fathered the world. And in fact, there are a few places in Scripture where you can actually find this idea used kind of metaphorically. In his famous sermon in Acts chapter 17 when the Apostle Paul was standing on Mars Hill in Athens and he begins to to preach to the the Athenians about this unknown God that they had this statue to in their city, and he began to declare the gospel to them. He began to use references that they were familiar with from their own culture, and he, he quoted one of their own poets, and he said, one of your own has even said, we are indeed his offspring. So he was referencing the fact that in their own culture, they believed that the people, that creation, was the offspring of a particular God. And so Paul uses this to reference this, and his very next words to them to make connection are this, being then God's offspring. So Paul was trying to take this idea that in some sense, being created by God, we have been as humanity fathered by God. He is the father of all that he has created. But he was using that in a, a metaphoric sense. He wasn't trying to define God by what he did because God is defined by who he is, but he was trying to take that and make connection. You see it again in, in Psalm 100, Psalm 100 verse 3. It says this, know that the Lord himself is God. So He is God. You need to know this. He is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. This is one of those places that people tend to run to and they talk about the fact that God is father because he has created us. So we call him father because he's created us and and we're his, but that's not really the implication that Psalm 100 verse three is trying to make. The point that the psalmist is trying to make here is the fact that he's God and you're not. Not that we call him Father because he has fathered us or created us. No, he's God and we're not. But you see throughout the scriptures this metaphoric idea of a creational fatherhood, that a creator father... That's stressed in different places, particularly metaphorically, throughout the scriptures. But when we say that God is Father, and we use His fatherhood to reference creation, we're not saying that because He created us and because He's father, that all people are saved. or it's not even to say that all people are believers, and it's not even to say that God relates to all people the same way, because He's created all people without distinction. The doctrine of God as Father is used throughout Scripture to implicate us towards our obligation to him as God. He is God and we are not. But like most good things, it can get distorted. So like we talked about some of the distortions last week, we'll show you some this week. In particular, a pretty popular group these days, the Unitarian Church, this is a particular, particularly distinct distortion that they make in their doctrine and their understanding of who God is. Unitarians will teach that God is the father of all human beings in the exact same way and that all of us, because of our being created by God the Father, are in a saving relationship to God. So therefore, we can find any number of ways to enter into that saving relationship, but because he is God and because he has created us and because he is God the Father, we are all already in a saving relationship with him. We just have to figure out which way we relate to him he's this cosmic father of all people in fact one of the the famous sayings to summarize the essential doctrines of the unitarian church is this popular idea called the fatherhood of god the brotherhood of man the brotherhood of christ and the familyhood of man the fatherhood of god the brotherhood of christ god's the father of all people jesus is just our brother and all of us in the earth are just one big family This is the idea, just to show you how this weaves its way into the church. When we talked last week about this being so so destructive when these things get into God's people's minds, this is the foundational idea behind our very popular hymn that we've all probably sung, if you've been around a church at any point in your life. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. Familiar with the song? Joyful, joyful, we adore thee. How does it go? God our Father, Christ our brother, all who live in love are thine. This is the essential doctrine behind that song. You won't find that hymn in most Protestant hymnals in the world today. Because the essential doctrine behind the hymn is that God is the father of all. That because God is the father of all, Jesus is the brother of all. And all of us are one just big happy family. It's saying that mankind sustains the same kind of father child relationship with God apart from any particular trust in who Christ has been for us. So Jesus might be our brother, but he's not necessary to atone for our sin. It wasn't necessary for him to live in our place and die in our place and for God to raise him from the dead and to accept the sacrifice of his son in our place for our sin. God's a father, we're all brothers. The giant familyhood of man, this cosmic father, this benevolent granddad that sits up in the sky and loves everybody, and you just have to love one another, and that's what it was all about. So sometimes when we talk about the fatherhood of God, this is where our minds naturally go. He's father because he created, but if that's the case, and if this is where we go, and if this is how we begin to understand this, what we miss is the fact that we are his because he has created us, and therefore we're accountable to him. That's what the scriptures are trying to teach. That's what the psalmist was trying to convey in Psalm 100. If he has created us, if we are indeed his offspring, then we're obligated to him. We're accountable to him. And you see, if all of us are accountable to God, and if we've all rebelled against him, and if Jesus is God's way of rescue and God's way of redemption, then announcing that God is the Father of everyone who has rejected him, as well as those who do not believe in his son, that becomes a very fearful reality because it means he holds all of us accountable to it. He holds all of us accountable to it. That's how the particular truth of God being the father as it's seen in creation is actually taught in the scriptures. By contrast, when you begin to read, you begin to see that scripture points to something very specific and much less sentimental when it calls God the Father. Scripture begins to point to the fact that in God there is this eternal relationship of fatherhood and sonship. And the first person of the Godhead is the Father, not because of what he has done, but for very Trinitarian reasons, because of who he is, because he's the Father of the Son. Now, another way that we tend to think of God the Father when we talk about him, and if I stand up and talk about, we're going to talk about God the Father this morning. Some of you will think about this creational side of God. Others will think about the redemptive side of God, that he's a redemptive father. And as Christians, when, when we tend to hear God the Father, most often we're reminded of this grace-driven relationship that we have with God through his son, Jesus Christ. It's what we read about earlier this morning in Ephesians chapter 1. I'll, I'll read it to you real quick. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's the Father because he's the Father of the Son, Jesus Christ, who in love predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So the creator who made us and the one to whom we must give an account, who we are accountable to, and the one who has every right to punish us for our sins has in mercy now made a way to adopt us into his family through his son, Jesus. And through Jesus, the father, the creator, and the judge now becomes our father, our redeemer, our adopter. And that's the best possible news that any one of us could ever have. And as Christians, this is where our mind tends to go when we hear of God being the Father. you see, if it's bad news for sinners to find out that God is our creator and that we must give an account to him and that he's accountable to God for his life and for his very breath, then it's great news to find out that that same father who we're accountable to has made a way to rescue us, to redeem us, to forgive us, to adopt us, and to call us his own. In the New Testament, the scriptures point clearly from the beginning to the end. They teach that those who by faith believe this good news about God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit have now been adopted into his family. And we can call ourselves children of God. As I was thinking about it, I was thinking, how else do we think about this? And and, and what are the implications of this? And how does this relate to the fact that God is the Father regardless of what he has done? It, It just began to hit me. As great as the saving love and adoptive fatherhood of God the Father is, The fact that he is the father belongs to something totally separate. That redemptive love, that adoptive fatherhood does not define who he is as the father. He is the father and he will always be the Father, and he has always been God the Father, even if he had never created us, even if he had never made a way to redeem us, even if he had never even adopted us into his own family and called us sons and daughters, because he has always been and will always be God the Father of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's who God the Father is. There is a foundation of fatherhood that's resident and defining in the very reality of God being who he is apart from anything he's done. And so when we begin to take his actions and use them as ways to define who he is, we miss the depth, the very essence of who he is without us. He's not dependent on rescuing us to be father. He already is. He always has been and he always will be. And that reality helps us to better understand what it means when we talk about him being our father. And it would be a mistake. It would would be a mistake to make the fatherhood of God depend on human sons and daughters. It would be a mistake to make the fatherhood of God depend on human sons and daughters. God has always been the father. He was the father before we ever got here and he will always be the Father. So if that is who he is, and this is what we proclaim and declare in the very beginning of this creed, what then does the creed have to say about God the Father, who has been, is, and always will be? And I love the very next thing it says. I've wrestled for years with the creeds, because both major creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed start this way, and I've wrestled with years for, for why they chose particular words in the creed, because you know every word was argued and hammered out. It was very particular and very specific. And so they give one word, and then next week we'll look at another way it helps flesh that word out, but it gives one word to help us understand and and describe and and put concrete reality to this God, the the Father, and it says that we believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty. The Almighty. I've wrestled with years for why they chose that word. Of all the words they could have chosen, why that one? I don't use that word very often. And because I'm a pastor and because my job requires me to read a lot and because I like to read a lot, sometimes I use words that nobody else uses because I read a bunch of things and nobody else reads, but I never use this word. No, I can't think of anywhere in my, my, my life, and my daily speech, I use this word. But they chose this word and I've always wrestled with it. And here's what I began to see as I was focused on having to unpack it to actually teach it and, and live with it and, and try to begin to cherish it if it's, if it's there and it describes him. I began to see that all that we love, all that we cherish, all that we treasure, all that we know and all that we love about God, all that we have experienced of his love flows from this particular root. That God being almighty is the root that Begins to define and produce the fruit of all that we have delighted in and experienced in God the Father. It's the foundation. He is Almighty. If He were not, then He wouldn't be God. This is the foundational reality of God. He is Almighty. If you've got your Bibles, flip over to Isaiah chapter 43. This is where we're going to be for the rest of our time. I just want to show you these two ideas together in one place and let the scriptures tease out a few implications of it for our life. A little bit different this morning. Might be a little more informational, but I want the scriptures to to make the case here. Isaiah 43, I'm actually gonna read verses one through 13, but what I want us to really sit on starts in verse eight. But I want, as we read, I'll point it out to you. I want you to see the fatherhood of God, the creator father, the redemptive father, even in what Isaiah says, but that's not ultimately why he is the father and he'll define himself towards the end. But Isaiah 43, verse one. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, so he did create you, Thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. So in verse 1, you get both aspects already. You've already got the Creator, and you've already got the Redeeming Father. Let's keep, verse 2 When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. We need to just preach on verse four and you should deal with that. Verse five, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I, what? Created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes. Who are deaf and yet have ears. All the nations gather together, all the, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witness to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. Now listen to verse ten on: "You are my witnesses," declares the Lord, "and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no god was formed, nor shall there be after any after me. I am the Lord." And besides me, there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And now here's his declaration of who he is. Just listen to what he says about himself I am God. And then he's going to fill it with meaning, he's going to define it for us. I am God, verse 13. And henceforth, some of your Bibles might say, even from eternity, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? I am God, and here's what that means I do what I want to do. And when I do what I want to do, no one can stop me, and no one can turn it back. That's what it means to be God. I act, and no one can reverse it. To say that God is Almighty is to say the same thing two different ways. To be God means that you are Almighty. To be almighty means that you are God, and that's essentially what they're professing in this creed. You see deity and might, the reality of God being God and declaring himself as God by his might, by his power, in places all over scripture. I'll read you two real quick, just so you see, I'm not just picking places like cherries off trees. Isaiah 45, five through seven. We should just preach Isaiah. Isaiah 45, five through seven, God's predicting the coming of King Cyrus centuries down the road. And this is what he says. He said, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. So there it is. I am God. I am the Lord. There is no one else besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. And he's talking about Cyrus, this pagan king, centuries before he was born. I will gird you, though you have not known me that men may know from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Think he's got a message? The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. Deal with that. I am the Lord who does all of these. Yes, he just said that. Isaiah 46, verses 9 through 10, you see it again. Remember the former things long past for, another way of saying because, I am what? God. And what? There is no other deity. I am God and there is no one like me. Let me define that for you. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. I am God. I act and no one can reverse it. I am God. My counsel shall stand. I am God and I will accomplish all of my purposes. This is what it means to be God. And this is how God is choosing to define himself as almighty. He has no rival. And he never has and he never will. There is no idea. There is no philosophy. There is no kingdom. There is no king. There is no... God, there is no religion that can rival the one true God. There is one true God who has always been and who always will be. He alone can act. He alone can do all that he purposes. And he alone can guarantee that what he purposes to do and what he puts his hand to do, nothing and no one who ever has been could ever stop and ever turn back. That's what it means to be God. He is Almighty. And without an Almighty God, there is no true God. If He is not Almighty, then He is not the real God. That word is reserved for one person. To be Almighty is to be God, to be God is to be Almighty. This is how he chooses to, divine, to find himself for us. And his aim in this, and, and my aim in, in trying to communicate this, and, and my prayer in communicating this in just this little snippet of time, but what I, I hope goes forward as, as the days and weeks carry on, was his aim is not that you just know this, not that you can just go, God is almighty. God is all-powerful. God acts and no one can stop him. There are no other gods. It's not just that you can say this with your mind, that you can know this in your mind, but that you actually begin to treasure it. That the fact that he is almighty becomes a foundation of joy in your life. The fact that he is almighty becomes a source of delight in your life. This is God's aim, that the fact that he is almighty be a foundation for joy and that out of that joy you would proclaim the reality of who he is. Because as you delight in who he is and he in and of himself, not just because of what he's done, but because of who he is, becomes a source of delight for you. As you delight in him, he receives glory. Glory. And as that delight spills out into proclamation, he is most glorified. This is his aim in declaring himself to be who he is. This is why he goes to great pains in scripture, especially in the prophet Isaiah, to define himself for us because his might is the foundation of our joy. It's the foundation of our comfort, of our security, of our peace. God is almighty. So why should his might be a source of joy for your life. God's might is good news because ultimately for sinful men like you and I, it is his might that undergirds and supports his almighty salvation. Why should God's might be good news for you and I? If he was not almighty, then his salvation could not be guaranteed. Your salvation could not be guaranteed. Before me, no God was formed, he said, nor shall there be any after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Add that to verse 13, and even from eternity, I am he. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? When God the Father Almighty commits himself to you to save you, to love you, to change you, to call you his own, to keep you, then you can be guaranteed on the basis of who he is that you can never be lost. None can keep him from doing what he has promised to do. None can turn his hand away from it. No one can take you away from him. When you think of God the Father in your mind and your heart turns to the redemptive love of God, let the reality of His might be the thing that brings joy to that reality. Because it's His might that guarantees His love towards you. It's His might that you can bank on when He's promised never to leave you and never to forsake you. His might undergirds His mighty salvation. I can, the early verses of Isaiah 43 he said fear not for I've redeemed you I've called you by name you're mine fear not Look, let me read that whole thing let me, you just need to hear this this morning fear not he's almighty he's almighty fear not I've redeemed you I've called you by name, you're mine. I mean, listen to, the, listen to the Father now talk. Hear his might. Now listen to his heart. Listen to his love that's undergirded by his strength. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord, your God, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom. Verse 5, a second time, fear not. I'm with you. I'll bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I'll gather you. I'll say to the north, give them up. Do not withhold. Bring my sons and my daughters from afar, everyone who's called by my name. Don't fear. Why? I created you for my glory. I formed you, I made you. I am the Lord besides me, there is no Savior. God declares over and over and over again. The Almighty Father declares, don't fear. Don't fear. There's things to look around the world and be anxious about. I get it. You're waiting on a doctor's call. I, I get it. Stock market keeps falling. I, I get it. There's things that are troubling. I get it. Fear not. I'm God. I've redeemed you. You didn't redeem yourself. Your safety and your comfort and your peace, it's not within your own ability to control it. Don't be afraid. I've redeemed you. I've called you out. I've made you. And I'm God. There's no one like me. I don't know what it is you're afraid of and what's causing you anxiety, but it's nothing like God. You know what's troubling you. You know what's producing the anxiety inside of you. You know what's keeping you up at night. You know what it is to think that if you could just fix this one thing or just get this one thing to do what you needed to do, then everything would be okay. And God says, It's not God. You have no need to be afraid of it. Why are you afraid? I've made you. I've called you out. I've made you capable of knowing me for who I am and who I've been for you through my son. I'm God and no one else can act and no one else can turn my hand. Don't be afraid. His might is meant to be the foundation of our joy. It's meant to be the thing that our assurance and our peace in the midst of anxiety and suspicion is to be built upon. It's the thing, the root, the foundation of What's supposed to bring us the most delight? And it's to be the content then of our proclamation. It's to be the content of our proclamation. God never meant for his love and his might to simply terminate on you and I. The almighty God rescues us in love and mercy that we might delight in him for who he is, that we might come to know him and see him for who he is, and that that might produce joy and peace in our hearts, that it might become the content of what we proclaim about him. That was his purpose. But what he says in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. My servant, whom I've chosen. Why? That you might know and believe me and understand that I am he, that I am God. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, and there was no strange God among you, and look, you are my witnesses. I am God, and from eternity, I am he. There's no one that can deliver. I work, and who can turn it back? Twice he said, I have done this, not only that you might know me, not only that you might delight in me, but that that delight might spill out as you are my witnesses. People who have seen or experienced something and then proclaim what they have seen. They proclaim what they have experienced. That's what a witness is, what a witness is. And God says that we are to be witnesses to the reality of his majesty. We're to be witnesses to the reality of his might. And what makes our witness powerful is not just the content of our words, but the delight in our heart that it comes out of. This is what knowing him in his might as the Almighty is meant to produce. So, Let me just ask you a few questions as we wrap up. How is your delight in the Almighty? Do you delight in the Almighty? Would your family and friends, would your neighbors or your coworkers, if I were to ask them about the the God that you believe in, would they describe for me a God of might? An almighty father. Is that who they would proclaim your God to be? How is your delight in God, the father almighty? Was he a feeble, weak, cosmic granddad who is too weak to make a difference and too distant to really care? (coughs) Is that how your family and friends would describe your God to me? When was the last time you actually considered the almightiness of God? When was the last time you actually sat and read and prayed and considered the fact that God the Father is almighty? It's what it means for him to be God this week, maybe this would be a good exercise for all of us. Whether you're a follower of Christ or whether you're just curious, whether you're skeptical, whether you're doubtful, maybe this week, just let's all just together consider God's words. Let's just consider what God has said and let's just pray and let's just ask Him to open up our eyes, to increase our delight in His word. Just consider this this week. Before me, there was no God formed and there will be none after me. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared, I saved, and I have proclaimed. Let's just consider that together this week. Because for those of us who are followers of Christ, this is our calling. To know God for who he is. To delight in God for who he is. To treasure God for who he is to treasure him as almighty, that he is the only true God and savior through his son, Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Let's pray. Almighty God, thank you for the very privilege that we have to to know you for who you are, to to actually be able to come to an experiential knowing and transforming understanding of who you are, the God who spoke all things into existence, who has existed in eternity, for eternity, would help us to grasp the bigness of who you are and the strength of your might. Help us to not just live day in and day out belittling the reality of who you are but help us to be humbled by the privilege of knowing and being transformed by the Almighty. Let it produce a God-honoring and Christ-exalting humility in our hearts. Let it become the fountain of delight and joy. Let it squelch the fiery darts of fear and anxiety and hopelessness and despair. Let us be able to proclaim with joy That you alone are God. You act. No one can turn your hand. And you alone are our Savior. We ask this, Lord, that you would be exalted and you would be made much of. we ask these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.